Hello, Revelers. So, how is everybody? How's your mental health? This episode on Revel Revel is surprisingly a lot about the ocean and literature and politics and lots of interweaving and how all of those things come into mental health. My guest is Vincent Achity, and he is the president and CEO of Mental Health Colorado, and he was gracious enough to give us time to talk, even though mental health is like the number one hot topic of 2021 and definitely 2020. So I hope that you get a lot out of this. And of course, my sponsor for this episode is betterhelp.com. That's better H-E-L-P. And I do know that a, a whole bunch of revelers have been using it. And I know that over a million people have been turning to betterhelp.com for their emotional and mental health. And it is working. It's not a quick fix. It's not something that you are going to have a session or two and then be quote unquote cured or healed. Uh, as Vincent will tell you, it's going to be a long process to get to where we as a people are really mentally strong. So I really hope that if you do not feel that you are where you want to be, that you will check out talking to a counselor, either in person or online with BetterHelp. And of course, if you use the URL that's on my website, then you will get 10% off your first month with betterhelp.com. You just use the code REVELREVEL, and you know I'm going to need the URL, actually. Just go to betterhelp.com, and when it asks for the code, you put in REVELREVEL, and you will get your discount. So without further ado, here we go. Hello, and welcome to REVELREVEL. I am Lauren Drabble, and today I have with me Vincent Achity, who is the, I just lost it, is it the director? What's the title? Uh, officially, it's president and CEO. Okay. I was so worried about saying your name correctly. I blew it. That's correct. All right. So director and CEO of Mental Health Colorado. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So as you know, because you've listened to enough of the podcast to know that we start off with how we know each other, and we don't. We don't know each other at all. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. When I got your welcome to the new year email, I said, hey, we talk about mental health a lot on Revel Revel. Let's see if he's open to talking to me about this. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm so fortunate. Thank you. So let's start off with a bit about your background because I got super excited after I set this up. I then went and looked at your bio on the Mental Health Colorado website, and I saw literature in your background, and I was like, this is serendipity right there. So how you grew up, where you grew up, how you got into literature and all that good stuff. Yeah, I would hardly say that literature is my background. Literature is the ocean we swim in. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, no, that's been my world since I was a baby. My mother will claim that my first word was book. Oh, nice. Good story. I'm not sure we believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both of my parents were students of literature, studied comparative literature. I went on and studied comparative literature after being a classics major as an undergraduate. I remember thinking that, huh, can you get paid to just read books? <laughs> no, right? <laughs> That's what I want to do. So I did I managed to do that for graduate school. And you went to USC, then Georgetown, or the other way around? The other way around, right. I studied classics at Georgetown and uh, comparative literature at USC. And did you have an emphasis? Uh, Sure, I did. And there, yeah, you know, first of all, I decided to study classics as an undergraduate because at that point, my thinking was all the stuff I would read as an English major is stuff I'll 
get around to on my free time anyway. Mm -hmm. What I need the, the discipline of school for is to study Latin and Greek uh, and ancient texts. And um, at that point, when I ended up having to focus and do a senior thesis, it was called Social Revolution and Eight Greek Tragedies. Oh. I'll usually include that in a through story of how I ended up working in the work that I do as far as health advocacy goes. So it's hard way back when. Well, this is your audience right here, that through story of how it all came together to bring you to where you go. That's where we're going to go. So cool. I'm glad that you already kind of talk that way to the rest of the world. So Greek and Latin, you can read both? Uh, no, I was never able to read Greek and limped along in a sad, slow way in Latin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then when you went to comparative literature, you mean more like world lit. Is that what you mean? Uh, well, comparative literature is normally described as it's the study of literature in their original languages. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole tradition within comparative literature of being suspicious of translation. Mm -hmm. And so language was, has been my other books and language have been my, this were the early poles of my uh, student like development. So. And what was your emphasis when you did the comparative literature? Oh, well, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I did not go straight to graduate school from undergraduate school. There was a era there in which I mostly traveled and, uh, alternated travel with different kinds of work that is in parallel with the kind of work I'm doing today. You know, I worked for um, a homeless shelter and uh, worked with children who'd been wards of the state and removed from their homes for various reasons. And then and I also worked in restaurants for a bunch where my companions were recent refugees from El Salvador. And there I started to learn Real, I mean, I'd started to study Spanish as a little kid, but that's where I really learned how to speak Spanish and then went to graduate school. And it was all, it's all been that serendipitous process of uh, not having a clear career trajectory other than wanting to somehow achieve some kind of full integration with the world that I was living in and uh, sort of put develop talents, put your talents to work, let it make sense, be of service and find the way that is uniquely my way of contributing. And so there's no way of knowing that. I don't think there, there wasn't for me, as some people may know. So I had to go through this whole process. And then in gra graduate school is really a turn towards, well, this is something I'm peculiarly good at. And um, I appreciate the language and the opportunity to learn some more and studied a bunch of different things in languages. You know, I've always had a hard time zeroing in on a single area and have tended to spread out all over the place. So I did a bunch of work in limping Latin. I did work in Spanish. I did work in English and French and ended up specializing on a particular moment in the history of the West. And that was the post- French Revolutionary era in English literature. And um, there I zeroed in on William Wordsworth and someone who reviewed him and examined questions of how do we rebuild our trust and confidence and authority after we have seen ourselves disappointed dramatically. So Wordsworth belonged to a generation of folks who were reform-minded, progressive political thinkers prior to the French Revolution. And when the French Revolution took place, they celebrated it as the rise and triumph of the people and the appropriate dismantling of a system that was corrupt and antithetical to human aspirations. And so they saw that happen and they were young in their 20s, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And then what they saw happen in the immediate aftermath of that moment of the French Revolution was the reign of terror when the Committee for Public Safety in, in the new France laid to waste thousands with the guillotine in this incredible public display 
that turned the whole political view of reformists topsy-turvy because they believed in the people and the power of the people and had aligned all of that with these high-minded notions of humanity based on things that the American revolutionaries had originally had embraced just before them, right? Mm -hmm. Dedication to equality and fraternity and all of those kinds of things. And then they saw what this thing happened and they had to kind of retool and remake sense of, well, what is our political position now and how can we identify ourselves as pro-human in the wake of human failure? on this tremendous scale where they thought they were debunking the divine right of kings and replacing it with the triumph of the human spirit and the human spirit immediately just chops a bunch of people's heads off. Uh, (laughs) And that was just the initial lesson for how do we make sense of the world we're in and Wordsworth and his reviewer were emergent figures of consciousness about how to do that retooling and stuff like that. So there you go. I finally was able to encapsulate my graduate studies in 20 minutes or less. <laughs> but you know what? It's also very, very topical to today. I mean, look at what we're going through. So, and I keep having guests and topics and books in my book group all be the right thing at the right time. So Perfect. Right. Yeah. So my emphasis in my English major was American ethnic studies. And I was way, way more interested in reading than the writing part of it. Right. Right. Me too. Yeah. But I I always love when people are like, oh, English major, you know, uh, you don't have anything useful as far as a job. And it's like, no, it's everything. Everything. It's the whole world encapsulated as long as you're reading the right stuff, I guess. You know, you can see connections. You can have this breadth and depth of view and viewpoint and understanding. Well, and I mean, getting right to the heart of it, it is where our mental health comes from. And uh, people don't really get the connection between education and mental health, but there you go. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, I mean, study after study has shown that if you just spend more time reading, and less time, say, online, you become right. calmer and more empathetic and all these well, things. And that, I mean, not just those physiological aspects of mental health, but the more, you know, spiritual or ethereal aspects of mental health, which are that ability to absorb other voices and digest and change and shift and grow uh, organically as a, as a creature of text. Like, you know, I'm, I made the joke that I, I swim in an ocean, like the ocean is literature or the ocean is text. We swim in this ocean that is semiotic ocean. And if we are have trained ourselves to swim in the rich, deep ocean that any kind of creature can come swimming out of the, the, the depths uh, and know how to navigate with that, well, then we're realizing something that is possible for humans. And if, on the other hand, we're limiting our, if we're insisting that we're not leaving this tide pool over here, well, then we remain a small, vulnerable creature that can be dried out or smashed by a big wave or something like that. And Or a little kid comes up and picks up the sea urchin and smashes it or right. pokes it to death right. with the, exposed the to seagulls or whatever, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's a the yep. metaphor only goes so far. <laughs> no, we can write a whole right. paper on it, but the nutrient rich world that you're talking about is perfect. Yeah. You know, one of the things we talked a lot about in my era in comparative literature amongst the students was redefining the notion of what literature is mm. and stepping away from this dusty leather bound canonical thing and deciding that, Oh, you know, even the stuff that's slipped under your door by a, a window cleaning salesperson. Well, there's a literature there too, that you can extract value from uh, if you study it and study the, it's whole, it's whole, it, the ecosystem, which produces it. And so what are we producing and what is the stuff that as we consume this semiotic ocean, what is the, what is the semiotic ocean that we're vomiting and excreting back into the world? And how deliberate is that? And what is our, what is the purposefulness behind that? And all those questions. Yeah. That's perfectly said. I mean, it all goes back to junk in, junk out, you know, good stuff in, good stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. It's intuitive, just sensible. It seems to me. (laughs) (laughs) So 
Let's go back though to when you were little, you said that book was supposedly your first word when you were a developing reader, you know, and you start reading on your, on your own, what were you obsessed with? Uh, you know, it might've been just volume and uh, cause I was surrounded with walls of books, literally. And, you know, my folks were, their world was book consumption. There was nothing that they'd not read and nothing was out of reach. And so I was just hungry and um, didn't start focusing in on favorite things until I was a good reader and uh, had already read a bunch of stuff, you know, and then it was just travel and adventure and uh, wild fictions and stuff like that. And I think uh, that is kind of reflective of this whole other principle and that it was not, you know, I was consuming for something and that was larger picture expanse and also that interface of discovery and uh, exploration where this is what people are heading off to do on purpose is untying the ship and sailing off into the unknown. That's in a, you know, on voyages of discovery, I would say is the, the umbrella categorization of what caught my really grabbed me. You're sounding very Jules Verne right now. Yep. <laughs> I haven't read it by Jules Verne. Well, send it my way because I want to. Yeah. <laughs> so, are you an only child? No, I'm. Uh, I have a sister. I have a younger sister. And is she as bookish? Yes, she totally is. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Yes, she is. Well, you know, it's it's funny how kids can just you know, go totally hard, right, hard left away from their parents and the family sort of view, but you all just sat around reading together, huh? Well, she's got other skills and talents. I mean, she's currently a nurse practitioner, but as an undergraduate, she studied French and Italian. So more diverse, my, a even healthier, more balanced uh, set of skills than my uh, science and math are were somewhat atrophied by my overconsumption <laughs> of humanities. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you, it sounds like, except for in between undergrad and graduate graduate school, you have pretty much been on the same trajectory for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's there is a monk-like or priestly identity path mm-hmm. in there that was too fraught with baggage for it to be real but there's this there's always been this pursuit of both um contemplative experience and enactment and uh that's been those are like my those have been my sort of if i've had a career path it's somewhere between contemplative experience and enactment veering wildly from one end to another perhaps until arriving at the present time so so since you mentioned contemplative at what point do you think that you started to figure that out um college mm-hmm. You know, I think I had early experiences in high school. I remember there being a whole, and that that a pre-verbal uh, acknowledgement of that in high school. I remember there was a phase where I had this really valid encounter with mortality and faith, and uh, learn, and just through a thought process, not through not through any traumatic experience. And there was a period there where it was difficult to go to sleep at night because I was so aware that when you lose awareness and you lose consciousness, there is no guaranteed return Mm. for any of us at any time, right? We take our days and lives for granted, but the next time you close your eyes could be the last time, whether you're stepping out into the street Mm -hmm or swinging a golf club or whatever it is. You don't know when those lights are coming down. And, uh, and so that made it hard to go to sleep and not forever. Um, you know, a couple of weeks maybe. And the way I did it was I would just intend to read all night and find stuff that I was fine with would end up falling asleep and had this thought process where I understood that the fundament of faith is the ability to go to sleep at night 
because most of us do it. And the end, it is also the ocean we swim in, however polluted it may be, uh, because so many people are seemingly capable of closing their eyes and knowing that the next day is going to be just the same as this day. And we're going to carry on doing our thing that they swim in this ocean of faith without even knowing it. But the way with awareness that you can end up going to sleep at night is surrender and just saying, yeah, whatever. Thank you. This was a good day. And if that's it, let's go. And, you know, and as you age, you realize that, wow, that's the way you want to go at the end is to be able to just go to sleep right, right. <laughs> at night. So that's been, that was sort of the emergence of that awareness at that point. So were you brought up by, you know, in your family with any sort of religious faith? Uh, sure. In some, in some, uh, humanities based version that dates back to Pythagoras, <laughs> uh, you know, I've got a, I come from a Catholic background. We've got generations of Jesuit trained educators and, um, folks. So, yeah, but there is nothing that is being, has ever through generations of that been swallowed hook, line and sinker by my, my historical, you know, family world. Gotcha. Always been a very fraught and challenged and thoughtfully engaged uh, conversation with hierarchical notions of church and religion. And then you end up talking about authority in your in your like paper programmed by the ocean women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So where did you grow up? Uh, mostly Southern California. I was born in the East Coast. You're born in the East Coast, but then you grew up in Southern California. Like where? Uh, the LA area around LA. Yeah. My folks were both educators in LA. So for my regular audience, Here's another Southern, Cal Southern California, and I had no, no knowledge of that. I knew we went to USC, but probably out of all of the 30 some people, probably 25 are from Southern California. Huh? Yeah. That's now, part of that is because I did, I, I went to high school in San Diego. And so huh. I know a lot of people who grew up in San Diego, but particularly because at San Diego, Navy town, there's a lot of transplants. No one was really from there. I've had maybe one person who's really from there, but whatever. So well, my dad, my, my dad who moved us to Los Angeles mm -hmm. would, would say that it's because it's Los Angeles and Los Angeles is the capital of the world or something like that. Oh, wow. But you San Diego people and I might not want to hear that. <laughs> so. No, no. Uh, the line ends at Oceanside, basically. We just don't care. And then we care again what, around San Francisco. So, <laughs> so what brought them to Southern California? He must have al always been enamored by it. Uh, no, it was an academic position. He got a job as a professor at Occidental College after he finished graduate school and moved us out to California. Cool. And then what made you choose Georgetown? That's a good question. I've had family members go to Georgetown, and uh, at that time I was on the fence. Part of me wanted to join, go to the Naval Academy and sail off into the unknown, but they, they ended up not taking me, and I've always thought that it was because I wrote my essay about sailing off into the unknown or something like that. And <laughs> they want to be known where they are, I guess. Right, exactly. Right. So, well, that's funny. And so you didn't get in, and then you went, okay, I'll just go to Georgetown. Yep. Wow. Major turning point. Yes. So kind of capricious choices? Uh, no, probably not. No, there was, went to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. Okay. Uh, and there again, it was about the world yeah. and learning all of that. Yeah. yeah. So as you look back on your life, and before we get to the mental health part, but it is you and I would know it's mental health. What books do you always find or what authors do you always find turning to in, you know, time of need? Uh, well, yeah, no, I feel like I have a pretty long track record of veering between East and West and reading theology in the West and Zen in the East. That's since I've been in college. So I'll go back and forth from 
contemplative tradition in Western Christian religion and Judaism, and then a whole lot of both Japanese and American Zen stuff. So in your time of need, you know, I'm letting you define what that means to you. You then turn to philosophy and religion and other sorts of nonfiction. You're not turning to fiction mostly? No, not mostly. Fiction is a great um, pleasure and indulgence. It's like, I really love it. And, um, but it's comfort reading at bedtime. It's the sure way of falling to sleep because all I have to do is get in bed with fiction and decide that I really want to finish this tonight Mm -hmm. to find out that I'm falling asleep a paragraph later. And that tension of being really eager to read something all the way through Mm -hmm. and uh, that'll put me to sleep anytime. (laughs) So what does that do for you when you do turn to the philosophy and religion and all that comp? Um, it can be really rigorous, deep thinking stuff. You know, what does that do for you and your mental health? Yeah. And and, uh, while I've dragged myself through the rigorous, deep thinking stuff, that's not, that's not what my area of preference is. And so what it does for me is it puts me back into the practice of sitting there on my cushion Uh, and trying to understand that oceanic experience that, so I think that when we're born, we are like atoms, right? We're atoms in this cosmos that we're born in. And if we, when we're feeling atomized and atom-like, it can feel oppressive and enclosed. And what we have the capacity for doing is really understanding that, wow, we are atoms in all of this and floating through it like bubbles in the ocean or fish in the ocean or something like that. Achieving that thing that the contemplatives write about, which is surrender and letting go and understand that you've got this big self and you've got this small self. Shunryu Suzuki, who is the one whose talks were recorded to create the book Zen Mind, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And um, we're so fleeting and ephemeral. And all of us, all the different feelings and experiences that compose us, that swirl around in our heads, that sort of reframe the little outside of our atomic bubble, are not helpful to us. In most cases, they need to just be, let that stuff diffuse through the membrane of the little bubble so that you can see through that membrane of the little bubble and realize that we're in space. We're floating through space. We're on a speck of a planet flying through every now and then the little email I get from earth and sky news says, huh, the asteroid that's passing today is no real risk to the planet. We've got, we're flying through this. Uh, we're going in so many directions at once, right? We're, we're turning on our axis. We're revolving around the sun. The sun is moving this way. The galaxy is moving this way. And when you look at a picture from the Hubble telescope of all of the galaxies out there, and then think about how large we get our little, wor- our little bubble world inside ourselves and how painful that can be for us, especially if it's negative stuff and how useless it is to others if all it is is the good stuff that's our world and we're not aware of how we impinge on all these other people. I don't know. I think there's there's real health in um, finding a way back to that quiet place of, of uh, you know, being attentive and grateful to the breath you get to take. So, What's funny about everything that you just said to me is that that's a lot of stuff, a lot of motion, a lot of movement, a lot of big, small, where do I fit in all this sort of commotion in what you just said. And yet for you, that quiets your mind. Yeah. Well, it's the weird phenomenon of stillness and uh, people and, you know, people think about you know, we know because of Einstein about space and time as a continuum, we have this theoretical understanding of it that anybody who's heard of Einstein, at least theoretically, or watched Star Trek, theoretically embraces. 
but under feeling the reality of that is a step that I think that something like contemplation or Zen practice as it's described uh, so compellingly by someone like Suzuki and so many others, it lets you get in touch with the reality of that in some kind of way. In reality, you know, we, we pose the pose of stillness. We're moving thousands of miles an hour and in different directions at once. So then it's stuff that a physical body can barely bear. And yet that's what we get, where our experience is. Uh, so I don't know. I think that there's an interesting, it's movement and stillness. It's sort of like that, uh, that reach out to set off on adventure into the unknown. Well, as it turns out, that's exactly what we're doing. And we don't need to move from our little spot. And uh, you can stay as still as you want, or you can run as fast as you can, but you do not know what is coming. And the next time you close your eyes could be the last. Yeah. Um, You know, you've mentioned the ocean a lot and you grew up in Southern California near the ocean. Were you near the ocean on the East coast too? Uh, Yes. Very close to the Connecticut coast. Okay. Yeah. Do you think that that, has had some bearing on how you look at things and why you're using this metaphor? Sure. Yes, indeed. You know, all, yeah, it's been the other key through story is the ocean, you know, the Pacific ocean is the biggest thing on earth is the thing we're always pointing out to the children. And, um, you know, my family is my mom, especially very ocean defined. My grandfather, uh, swimming in the ocean, swimming in ocean waves since early childhood, uh, sailing, being at sea, things of the sea. I was tempted by marine biology while in high school. Thought about going to Woods Hole, you know. Yeah. This yeah. is such a simpatico thing going on because so I grew up never further than an hour from the ocean, first on the Atlantic, then I moved to San Diego. I spent every single weekend, all summer long. And then most of the winters too, even on the East coast at the beach on the Jersey shore. And I too looked at marine biology and was heavily influenced by Jacques Cousteau. And, (laughs) and, you know, I think that there is definitely something when you grow up by the water and not just by, you know, a lake or a river, but by big water that has currents and tides and pulls and it pulls you to it then pulls you into it. Literally. Sure. And that would snap you like a twig. Yes. Yeah. So, but now both of us have found ourselves very, very inland. So, so what happened after you graduated, you know, f- with your graduate degree, where did life take you next? And how did you end up here? Uh, yeah, good question. So, I mean, still just sort of an explore- exploratory mode. Part of getting a graduate degree was teaching Spanish in Spain and living in Spain for a couple of years and thinking at some point that I was just never coming back. And then coming back here, I spent some time. My dad is a literary agent and he went from being a professor to being a literary agent and or literary manager and a film producer. So there was a spell of time where I worked with him developing manuscripts in fiction and nonfiction as well as screenplays and uh, both developing material, but then also serving that kind of salesmanship role of meeting with studios and um, publishers and things like that to pitch stuff. And so I spent a spell in Los Angeles and then in New York doing that. And then through serendipity, got a series of post-grad sort of adjunct teaching appointments. I had a one of my thesis advisors called me out of the blue when I was in New York and said, hey, so there's this fellow who's taken ill at Fordham University in their English department. They need somebody to step in and f- finish teaching his George Eliot class or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I picked up that adjunct role, which then carried on through one thing after another and at Fordham and then back at University of Southern California with another postgrad teaching fellowship appointment or vice versa. I don't know, Fordham and then 
USC and then back to Fordham. So back and forth for a while doing that. And uh, that was great and everything in terms of that exploratory modality of being out there and getting around and doing interesting things. But it's no way to make a living. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> so I started doing picking up more solid work at the university being an administrator and running admissions uh, or student services and admissions and doing that kind of, you know, infrastructure support administration. And that's the bread and butter. And uh, that's the bread and butter that has gotten me where I am today. And, uh, you know, being a high functioning administrator who can keep stuff going and not drop a whole lot of balls is the way to go. So I did that. I taught, worked with undergraduates at Fordham for a while, and then had an opportunity to work with graduate students at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. And I remember joking at the time that, well, in every class of undergraduates that I'm teaching uh, romantic literature to, there are 30 of them. Eight of them are paying attention. They're fantastic. And then the rest are just waiting to graduate so they go work for Goldman Sachs or Mm -hmm. (laughs) something Mm -hmm. like that. So when the opportunity to move to Berkeley came along, I thought, well, I'm trading this New York crowd of undergraduates in for this crowd of Berkeley public health students. How interesting is that going to be? And uh, indeed, that was sort of like an add-on graduate school experience was getting to work with those students as their dean of admissions and also a lecturer and working with that faculty, which are people who are on the World Health Organization and are MacArthur Fellows uh, and things like that. And all along as this classics major committed to service thinking, well, why didn't they tell me about public health when I was an undergraduate? When I was an undergraduate, I thought public health was like restaurant inspections or something (laughs) like that. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. And uh, so, you know, I realized that I'd been doing public health all along because uh, when I wrote about social revolution and Greek tragedy, it was all about the health of the of the public, that 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 thing that we do collectively. And uh, every Greek tragedy that I wrote about was somehow about a society that is being poisoned by its own self-inflicted wounds in one way or another. It's wounds of unforgiveness or intolerance or something like that. And there's a marginalized figure whose marginalization is making the whole dynamic of an ill society. Mm-hmm. And then the, the way the tragedy is told, there's this cathartic process where that marginalized figure is the healing of that rift is what enables the community to end in satisfaction at the end of the day. You know, that's, there's, that's public health, that's mental health in a nutshell. Is that's, a, that's the work we're trying to do here is take these, and it's the ocean and the individual again, and you take this poor polluted individual that is, we've all been swimming in a toxic ocean. The ocean's huge, thankfully, but for some reason we're swimming in that big chunk of the ocean where all the plastic ends up. That's kind of like, our identity and what we all need to do. And it's not just an American thing. It's about humans on this planet is we need to stop making that giant thing, the size of Texas of plastic and raising our children and living in that and hating our neighbors. We need to stop making that. And we need to swim in this and understand that this is our tiny little planet and all that space with that thing of the Hubble telescope all those galaxies, there's only 7 billion humans and they all fit on this tiny little atom. And the way we're doing this to uh, each other and ourselves is plainly mentally, that is not mental health. We are profoundly disordered as a creature. Hmm. And those of us who would be well end up being disordered because we have been swimming through this This has been what's coming in our roots and out through our branches uh, since we were little seedlings or something like that. So again, when you put it that way, it makes it sound like it's 100% understandable that people have mental health issues. How could you not living in this ecosystem? There you go. Right. We wanted to have t-shirts printed that said, uh, that say something like, if you're not feeling at least a little mentally ill, then we're really worried about you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. 
so you're doing public health type of stuff at UC Berkeley. And then what happens again? We, we didn't, you didn't get to the, how you ended up here. All right. what, what else happened in your life that brought you here? Well, we, we had our first baby. My mm-hmm. wife is from Colorado and uh, her family's in Colorado and my family's in California, but uh, we had our first baby and she wanted, you know, she naturally wanted to be close to her family but was happy to be close to my family. But then there was the economic imperative of thinking, oh my gosh, we're squeezed into this tiny little apartment in the East Bay. We could live in Colorado and like have a <laughs> live in America as we joked. So the way we resolved it was as she was at home with the baby, I, I said, look, I've got a job here and it's a pretty good job. So how about this? Let's not argue about this anymore. But if you want to search for jobs that you think might be a good fit for me, I, as your dutiful, loving husband, will apply for them. Mm-hmm. And then we don't ever have to argue about this again. Believe it or not, before he was six months old, I got an offer at uh, CU Anschutz mm-hmm. to work on a project that was all about making connections between kids and their career aspirations and the needs in the healthcare workforce. So it was healthcare workforce pipeline development. And so that was my opportunity and we moved immediately. So I've been here since um, the end of 2010. You've been here in Colorado since the end of 2010. Yep. Okay. So as I said before about English majors, you know, about making the connections, that job is about making the connections that you had at CU Anschutz. Yeah. So about making connections, you know, it's so disheartening when other people can't see that's the skill set you need to make the connections. It doesn't matter if your degree is in public health or not. You know, you have, you have the foundation and the basis and the right mindset. That's, that's what's more important. How did you ever struggle with people even looking at your resume or in interviews to say, no, I can, I can do this. Don't worry about what my degree is in. Um, no, because I think that the people who do this work have a keen understanding of what the work is. And though I've, you know, I have, I don't think you need a degree in public health necessarily. Uh, oh, I agree. It's just yeah. the stupid algorithms now that, you know, the resume Not generators, what the word is, uh, you know, but when they say the minimum requirements on a position must have a degree in public health. So if you don't, it kicks you out and you don't even get talked to. You're not ever in the consideration because of that. As a student advisor, I don't often advise people to get a degree in public health either. So, And why? What what do you say to them? Uh, You know, I think that it's no guarantee of having the kind of impact you want to have. And Mm. what you might want to do is take your public health orientation. And if you want more education, and that's maybe a good idea, because the longer you spend deepening the wrinkles in your brain, the better off maybe uh, for some folks. But I would say you study business or you study law or you study uh, some other hard science and engineering uh, or a medicine or something like that. And then you've got these tools to change the world. And um, it's the orientation to change the world, which seems to be rare or something like that. Yeah. So how long have you been working in the mental health world? So I fell into the mental health world. Well, so it's a process. You know, initially I was doing the workforce development pipeline. And one of the things you learn very quickly about Colorado's healthcare workforce is that we've got really dramatic shortages of critical healthcare workers, particularly when it comes to behavioral mental health. So that level of awareness is immediate when you start focusing on that. And then the next thing I went and did was at 2012 or so, the state was enacting um, this new framework for managing healthcare for Medicaid enrollees. It was the Regional Care Collaborative Organizations, and the whole state was divided up into this. And a colleague of mine was had founded this entity called the North Colorado Health Alliance, 
which was, I thought, one of the most sensible things I'd ever heard about because it was an entity that consisted of all of the stakeholders in the community that shared the, were holding ends of the um, ropes to hold the safety net together for population health. And the Alliance was this place where they came together to collectively manage, making sure that gaps weren't there and things like that. And they got the contract in 2012 for the state to manage care for Medicaid patients across the northern stretch of Colorado from South Larimer out east of Weld County. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got to be the chief operating officer where we developed this care management team and built this crew of folks that were analyzing Medicaid claims data and providing individualized concierge-like case management for folks in order to improve their health outcomes and reduce costs. So taking people who were visiting an emergency department some unreasonable number of times in a year, you know, 30 times or more in a year, and addressing their needs so that we were bringing those numbers down to one or two a year and saving thousands and thousands of dollars to provider networks by creating access to care at a preventative sensible level uh, that was better for patients and for the way we spend our health resources. So that was just a tremendous practical education and application of principles about what makes makes some people spend longer and experience illness more difficult with with uh, poorer outcomes. One of the fundament, dr- fundamental drivers across people of great health needs is mental health need, behavioral health need. They've all got a co-occurring diagnosis. And if not diagnosed, well, symptomatic behaviors that are tied to. Why aren't they managing 50 different medications that they need to take at certain times of the week? Well, because they've got so many other things uh, going on in their lives. You know, they don't, it's hard to know that, you know, if you need a bus to get from home across town to get a, to some doctor's appointment to renew some medication you've kind of lost track of, and you, you've got so many different things impinging on your day to day and yesterday that you can hardly, you know, get from one end of the day to another. Well, no wonder you end up calling the emergency department when something starts going awry because that's what the, the drivers of those kinds of behaviors are solvable things with a little bit of focused attention and care. So you started in mental health around 2012-ish. How have you seen the evolution of people caring about mental health and the dialogue about it evolve just since you got into it? Yeah, well, and very positive. And this is a great source of optimism. You know, I spent a chunk of time between the North Colorado Health Alliance and Mental Health Colorado. I was running this organization called the Equitas Project, which was funded by the David and Laura Mirage Foundation and was focused nationally on the intersection of the mental health needs with the criminal justice system. Mm. This is a critical point for me too, stemming back to things we discussed earlier. And, you know, we talk about uh, the micro mental health of individuals and their families and their need for access to care. And that is the critical heart of our work, but there is a macro level of mental health and it ties to, again, this oceanic pollution thing that we're swimming in. And that's that, you know, we've all been raised with these beautiful healing words that come out of us about liberty and justice for all. And, you know, equal rights and belief in, you know, neighbors and fraternity and equality and all these things that really do make us healthy and make the whole world healthy. And yet, when we turn around and look at the numbers, we are the incarceration nation with 5% of the world's human population and something like 20 to 25% of the human, the world's incarcerated human population. So how can we be well? How can we be well as people or as a country living in that world? So, um, you know, working on that intersection as the counterpoint to 
having, you know, to the work at that physical health intersection where mental health is a driver of physical health, it's just impossible not to draw conclusions about how central mental health is to our overall well-being and how we can't even think about macro mental health without also thinking about micro mental health and vice versa. It's like the way we focus a camera, right? In the old days, when we had to focus them with our hands. You know, you turn your, you turn it one way, but you don't stop. That's not how you focus. You have to turn it back the other way and then make a third adjustment to zero in on it. So to my mind, all our work and advocacy is about this micro macro adjustment of we need to fix this urgently for individuals and their families right now. But we also need to understand that we need to do the things that President Biden was mentioning just the other day in his inauguration speech for the first time in American history, acknowledging that we need to address white supremacy. We need to address systemic racism. We need to address these pollutants that are counter to the beliefs that make us the world state, the, the hero of the world as a nation. Everybody loves the America that stands, really genuinely stands for those things that we've been taught to believe in. And everybody is as sickened as we are by the America, <laughs> the America that we too often have lived in. Uh, and it's got to go. And it's a commitment and a decision. And we have to be this people. We, this we the people is the good we the people. And uh, we right. choose that. There's a choice. Yeah. Yeah. The, the huge disparity gap in between our ideals and our reality. Yeah. Bridging that and gap. And we close that with, by making a, a shift in a a deliberate change in direction. We just say it's navigational back to the sailing and the ocean thing. It's saying we, the people want to go over there. That's where, not over there. And so we need to course correct. So when I was doing the Equitas work, we held these course corrections events. So we held two for the state of Colorado and the whole opener was about the Constitution, we the people, in order to form a perfect, more perfect union, just as President Biden uh, and others have been saying. And uh, we need to just choose. And we had a room full of everybody along the spectrum of stakeholders who engage with people at the intersection of mental health and criminal justice. So we had the behavioral health providers, we had the law enforcement officers, the public defenders, the district attorneys, county commissioners, hospitals, uh, state leadership, human services, corrections, office behavioral health. And the opener is, where are we going? We're going to the more perfect union. We do not want to be the incarceration nation. We don't want to be taking people who have primarily health needs and criminalizing them and making matters worse and spending a fortune to do it. There's like, there, it's not even like it's the cheap thing. Right to treat people like criminals and fail. It's expensive to do it that way. And everybody's, nobody's disputing that. It's not a bipartisan, there's not a, it's the most cheerful at this most painful place. It's the most optimistic place because right and left understand that when you're mentally ill, that doesn't make you a criminal. And that the managing mentally people with mental illness as if they're criminals is costly and stupid. And knowing having that kind of bipartisan understanding about that is a great source of optimism. So, you know, we've seen work progress rapidly in not just in Colorado, but all over the country to decarcerate and do diversionary practices at every level. And the level of conversation and understanding about that amongst community leaders is as never before. And now what we've had, thanks to the pandemic, is this additional acceleration of public awareness, where back in the day as a mental health advocate, just getting people to register that mental health is something they ought to be thinking about if they're not already deeply caught up in mental health thinking, that's challenging. But thanks to the pandemic, everybody's talking about mental health because it when you're physical health and your both on the micro and macro level are as dramatically assailed as it has been by this virus. Everybody feels it as a mental health issue almost immediately. So the secret silver lining for our mental health advocacy is that everybody, we've got a big 
audience of understanding of how we want to be preventative about mental health and promote mental health and not have to address crisis and chronic stuff because that's so painful and lethal. So we're in a good spot. And, you know, this corner that we just turned this week where, you know, it's not about right or left. It's about the people who showed up to make a president a president. You know, when I think about those bands that have been preparing for this for a year or more, knowing that they were going to get to be the bands that represented the country at Inauguration Day. They don't know who's going to win or lose. That doesn't matter. It's about this presidency that we create, that we the people create, and that we have these principles that are founding principles that we are going to articulate and assert and use them as surgical tools to eradicate those cancerous entities of thought, those little bubbles of thought that are poor for the body politic. And, uh, you know, we can contain them. We can do whatever we need to do to contain them, but we need to identify them and surround them with under healthful understanding. So I feel like I'm super optimistic that we took a turn. And uh, I think the whole world is feeling better today than they were five days ago, because all over the world, it's a step back in the right direction. And nobody's perfect. And atomized people are foolish and corrupt and make stupid mistakes. But as we head in the right direction, that stuff pills in significance. Uh, whereas if we are headed over the freaking cliff, it doesn't matter what, there's no sense or sensibility. And uh, we fall apart. So it was a good turn. Well, I am very glad to hear that you are encouraged because that that will encourage others. You know, if someone who's in it is not optimistic about where we're going, that changes yeah. the look. So, so yeah. So as we we kind of wrap up, I want to go back to the ocean theme and about you know where life has taken you and stuff. It just really seems like you've been riding a wave or catching another wave or floating along and letting life sort of happen that way. So would you, would you say that that's true or would you, do you look back and think, but no, I, I calculated these portions at least, or these decisions? Yeah, in a way, I think my, in my ultra life, I am a surfer dude and <laughs> I'd never learned to do other than body surf, but in some alternate life, I just get up at every morning at six and do that for five hours. And that is the main thing that I'm doing. <laughs> so. so what are the benefits of approaching life that way from a mental health standpoint of just riding that wave and seeing where life takes you? Well, I mean, for me, as the alternate life surfer dude, who's been a sailor, I mean, it is, you're with the largest thing on the planet and you are paying attention to space and time and you're doing something you're good at doing that you've got this particular line you're going to carve out and you may fall off but you're good at carving this line and you're going to get thing after thing coming at you that can snap you like a twig mm. uh, but you're glorying in it and what you're doing is you're you're making the horizon more beautiful for people on the shore too. And you're reminding people that being at one with the sea and being throwing your art into vulnerability and the infinite strength of that, that is ultimate mental. I think that you're automatically have some one up upsmanship in mental health. If you're spending your morning on a surfboard, and that goes for so many things that people do for their mental health. So I like that you said glorying. It just reminds me of why I named the podcast Revel Revel, that we want to revel in the details and reveling and glorying is like the same thing. Yeah, it's a sacred dance. It's the, yeah. the thing we get to do. Yeah. And, and I just wanted to return to the political moment because it's a big one. I do so much of my work with people who are Republicans. Mm -hmm. And uh, my thoughts are all of 
how we work with our rural partners and healing that rift between rural and urban that's so definitive of Colorado politics, mm-hmm. understanding that, you know, things like dampening the fire and realizing that it doesn't have to be, you know, no hold barred battle all the time. To steer a ship, we need left and right. We need to push and pull on a helm this way. But it's when we agree on where we're trying to go that we get to steer. We don't get one side yanking us off in that direction, another side yanking us off in that direction. Ultimately, where we want to go is where we have to begin our conversation. And it's so fundamental and easy because Colorado is such a nice place to live. You know, where we want to go is here, more or less. We've got a nice place to live. It's beautiful. And what we want is some stability in it and no fear. We want to know that, you know, we're not going to run out of food and no one's going to take our house from us. And we're going to be able to do something and be part of our community. And we want our kids to grow up safe and strong. You know, we want to experience well-being as we age. So that's my starting point for conversations with partners all over the state is where we want to go. You start with where you want to end up and then you navigate to get there. And you need loyal opposition because humans are we sh- just the micro macro thing. We need that shifting back and forth to get to go in a straight line when we're traveling in a million different directions at once because we're flying through space. I just have fundamental belief in parliamentary government. Governance, the word comes from the Greek word for the helm of a ship. We govern the way we steer a ship. And what we can't have, we have to have certain things we agree about. And I think that the left is inflamed by the right for good reason, because there's non-negotiable things around white supremacy, racism, the history of you know slavery, and there's non-negotiable things for the left when it comes to whether the Holocaust is really a thing and whether anti-Semitism is really a thing. Sorry. That's non-negotiable. So the right has to erupt and let that boil go. And then we can heal and have opposing viewpoints and concerted. We're heading in the right direction because we've agreed that that is not the direction. We're going to embrace diversity and we're going to embrace our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And we're going to embrace love and forgiveness. These are the values. Yeah. So anyway, that's, I think there's a there's healing opportunity there. For sure. One thing that I try to always do if possible on the podcast is have book recommendations, you know, me to you, you to me, to the audience in general. And as you were talking about where do we want to go and having the morality to decide that where do we want to go? What do, who do we want to be? The first book that came to mind for me was a but I'm not sure if you've heard of, it's called the Nordic theory of everything. No, and I don't know. it's a Finnish author and I can't say no. her name very well, but it's like Anu Partiten. All of the book information stuff is always in the show notes and I can email uh, your, your team about her book, but it's. I would love that. I've got a whole Finnish affinity thing. I've never been, uh-huh. but I've, I've got a longing for Finland. So that I sounds- went, I spent, ah. I spent a whole week. There, well, well, it feels like a whole week. I have to actually go back in my journal and count how many days, but I loved it, loved it. And the premise of the book is that in the Nordic countries, as a society, they said, Who do we want to be and where do we want to go? And how do we give our people freedom and stability to do these things? And it's beautiful. You'll love it. I love it. Yes. And so much of my socio political health thinking is inspired by Scandinavian success. Yeah. You know, they're not perfect either. But as I've been joking in rural Colorado is we don't have to be the Garden of Eden. We can just be a little bit more like Sweden. (laughs) Right, right, right. close Close the gaps a little bit, be a little bit more high functioning in terms of our systems of care for one another. Yeah, our systems of care. I like that. We can age into security and confidence instead of aging into fear. Which is what's definitely happened since the 80s, for sure. I'm not really sure if it started before then, but in my lifetime, it felt like since Reagan. So what about you? What in general books do you want to recommend, but particularly anything that uh, would be helpful, comforting, course corrective, whatever 
you know, either personal or political. Yeah. And there are so many things that could be recommended at that non-comforting side of things in terms of good stuff that's been written about our current situation that we're moving out of in terms of that intersection of mental health and criminal justice. Uh, but that's not comforting. I think that for something comforting, the book, one of the books I've enjoyed most in the past year or so is, and I'm not gonna remember the author's name, sadly, and I'm sorry, Mozart's Starling. Mozart's Darling, I don't know it. Mozart's Starling. And uh, it's a nonfiction work about uh, a woman who adopts a wild starling and writes in parallel chapters about Mozart's pet starling. And the presence of a starling across Mozart's compositions. Hmm. And that's alternated with her own experience of living with this wild creature in her house that's this underestimated starling. They're considered a pest in the United States. And about the intelligence of this creature and their interactions with one another, it's really one of the most warming, delightful, page-turning things you could... I, I just think it's one of the best things, so... Wow. Okay. You know, if you had said, I'll give you a thousand dollars, if you can guess what I'm going to say, I never would have gotten that. So that's funny. I, I love it. Yeah, birds are a whole other thing. I, <laughs> I forgot to mention the bird reading. Yeah. Well, yeah. So if you're, if you're a bird type of memoir, comforting reader, what do you think of H's for Hawk? Uh, sure. I love the H's for Hawk. Yeah. yeah. I, that, as soon as you start talking about birds, I thought, oh, he's going to talk about that. Is it a bunch of them? Well, I thank you very much for your time. I know that you're very busy, um, probably busier than ever with all that's going on in the world. And I really appreciate you making the time to talk to us. No, that was fun. Thank you so much. Enjoyed talking to you. Well, Revelers, I hope that you think this has been as delightful as I have. Obviously, as an English major, I'm just biased, but I love reveling and glorying in all of the metaphors and how he just sees connections and brings things like this all together and is able to synthesize. And that's, you know, what I try to do here. And it was nice that I didn't have to as much maybe as normal because the way we think is very similar. So that was fun for me. I hope it was fun for you. And I hope that it spurred you on to thinking more about how you take care of yourself and your mental health. Maybe this will make you want to read more. Um, This is going to be published on one of the snowiest days in Denver history. So I encourage you to go and read after listening to this. And I also encourage you to sign up for Mental Health Colorado's upcoming uh, event. It is March 19th from 12 to 1 only. It's only an hour out of your time, uh, mountain time here in Colorado, uh, so that you can learn more about mental health and what's going on and how to get involved and hear some cool speakers. It is free too. So check it out. The link is in the show notes. Thanks everybody. Have a good one.